Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I want to talk about family resemblances this evening. Family resemblances. That is, when you look in the mirror, you, of course, see more than yourself. Uh, When you look in the mirror, you see uh, aspects of your mother or your grandfather. Uh, You see in the mirror how maybe your own children have replicated your own facial features. You know, when I I just saw my father this afternoon, and I I noticed, oh, there it is. There's my hairline right there. (laughs) And we like to mimic uh, aspects of our uh, families that we find Uh, impressive. I remember when I was uh, a young uh, 22-year-old, I noticed that my very roided-out jock brother, who subsequently became a cop, which is very funny, um, uh, but he he, uh, received uh, in his uh, ear several earrings, and I thought he pulled off the look rather well, and I wanted to show that I myself had a a rebel streak, and I decided to get an earring too. but then I got ordained, and, uh, and, and the, the bishop came to me before the ordination service and said, Ethan, I don't have any objection with you having an earring, but you know how there are certain people who can pull off a look and other people who are just trying too hard? <laughs> you look like you belong in the latter category. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes... Uh, we, we mimic and mirror people well, and other times we don't. Uh, but my point tonight is that we do inherit an image. We inherit an image, and within our own understanding and our own spiritual framework, we believe that that image that we inherit goes well beyond facial features and melanin and eye color and parentage and uh, temperament. We are inheritors of the image of heaven, of the great divine spark. We are people who carry with us the reflective capacities that God has given to each of us to shine forth something of heaven in the earth. Uh, we are image bearers. And, uh, and, and so your true origins lie in the genius of God, that you are part of the genius of God. And part of our redemption song that First John wants us to learn to sing, part of our redemption song is the, the regaining of that family resemblance to begin once again to mirror the quality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to speak about that tonight, John's writings about these family resemblances. And, and he asserts that all of us, all of us who are in Christ Jesus, uh, regarding our place in God's family, we all have a new position as well as a new pattern And in this new position and in this new pattern, we regain some ground and we begin to regain the family resemblance. So let me speak tonight about the position and the pattern. Now, this text, like many in the Johannine corpus, that's a very fancy way of saying everything that John wrote. uh, This text is very, very deep. I can't deal with it all. But what I would like to do is take some selections and deal with them. Now, in the first portion of our reading, John is establishing his congregations yet again in their position, in their familial position. This is verses 1 through 3, though I'm only now going to read verse 1. 
This is what it says. I encourage you to please take up your bulletin and follow along. Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Uh, So John writes that God's love is displayed in a particular way. Now, of course, there are a million ways, and that's uh, that's too low of an estimate, but a million ways in which the eternal love that God has for you is displayed. But John is saying here is one very clear way in which God's love is being displayed. And it's being displayed in a reattachment or a bonding or a relationship that he has established with you or that he has given to you, the text says. Given to you. Now, that's the language of grace rather than merit. So God has gifted you with a new sense of himself and even yourself because now he is no longer your uh, maker and judge only. He has also established himself as your father, which means you are now no longer a hireling or a servant or just a cog in a big machine or just another brick in the wall. Uh, You are instead a son, a daughter, a child, an inheritor, somebody who belongs to the royal family. You have now been brought into the innermost circle and sanctum of God. Uh, and, and this is uh, why in John's epistles, this whole concept of you being brought near to God, made family with God, this is why he keeps referring to his audience in such an infantilizing way. Do you notice that? That John, when he's writing, he always talks to little kids. My little children. I'm like, I am 40 years old. Uh, uh, who are you to talk to me that way? But, but he includes himself, right? He says, we are children of God because he sees himself as a child. He's infantilizing himself. Now, why is he saying that? It's because he's suggesting that this new relational position that we have, um, that all of us have, is one of great intimacy, one of great care, one of great bonding, one of great trust that a small child can have with a good father. And so he's trying to say we're all on the same level and we all relate to God in this close way, in this intimate way, in this familial way. And this new relational position of relating to God as child to father is not terribly new. That is, it's actually the most ancient relation that people had. That is, in our origin story, and this is so important for us to remember as believing people, in our origin story, we did not start off poorly with God. In fact, when God saw his initial children in the world, along with everything that he created, he gave it a label and gave us a label. And that label was very good. Very good. So you were regarded from the start as very good. And then, uh, of course, Sin enters the picture. Now, we talk a lot about sin in church, and that isn't because we're hyper-negative and we need to get self-esteem classes. The reason that we do that is because the Bible from Genesis 3 to, like, Revelation 20 is pretty much rich in the language of sin because it's a real crisis and we need somebody to deal with it. So there's a reason we focus that much on it. However, it's important to note that original sin was not our original disposition. Original innocence precedes original sin. And not all of that original quality is lost, right? Our image of Godness is not entirely obliterated, affected, afflicted, demolished, but not altogether gone. 
Um, and so what God is doing in the work of redemption is restoring that relationship that was lost, restoring that parental bond between heaven and us. Um, and that's why uh, Jesus taught, and he taught this to Nicodemus. You may remember the story. It's in John's gospel very early on in chapter 3. Nicodemus was a very famous and fancy teacher with a lot of degrees on his wall. And he came to Jesus, and when it was very dark so nobody could see him, uh, you know, like a Baptist going to the bar at 10 p.m., um, right in the cover of darkness. He's going to, I didn't say that, and he's um, he's he's going to Jesus at night, and he's... Um, He's, he's wondering about things that are ultimate. He's wondering about Jesus' source, where he comes from, and he thinks he's from God, and he, he wonders how people can be fixed on the inside. And Jesus says to him, it's not enough to be born into the world. It's not enough to have a good mother and a good father. Biology and biological conception is not enough for you. You need a more spiritual conception. You need a more spiritual birth. And he, so he says to this bewildered teacher of the law, he says, you need to be born from from above or born again flesh gives birth to flesh but spirit gives birth to spirit nicodemus you've had the one but you need the other you need to be born again you need to be uh, made a child of god that's the idea you need to be brought into the family of god uh, and and so that's what we need the paternity of god the father almighty that's what we need and what is the mechanism for this new birth what's the cross at the cross, we receive that mechanism. We're able at that place to receive a new innocence, a new innocence. That's what the cross is all about, giving us a new innocence so that we can reattach. We can have a reattachment with our original uh, place of origin, person of origin. And we can revert yet again to the status very good. So all of those who are in Christ Jesus are very good because of the credibility of Jesus. It's been gifted to you. And so you now have a, re, a, a, a rebonding ceremony in your baptism and in your belief. You have a rebonding with that which is ultimate and true. Um, <clears throat> you can rejoin the royal family. This is what uh, J.I. Packer wrote about this. J.I. Packer very sadly died recently, and, uh, but he was an Anglican apologist and theologian, and he writes this. Adoption, that is being brought into God's family. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved by God the Father is greater still. Isn't that good? So there's this great music video that you need to YouTube whenever worship is over, and it's from a band named Enigma, and they're very kind of New Agey, Enya-esque. And, uh, but they had, I think, a one hit in 1993, but it was very good. And it was called Return to Innocence, Return to Innocence, and it's a beautiful, it really is, it's a beautiful music video. It reminds me of the film Tree of Life, if you've seen that. Um, but in the beginning of the music video, there's a very old man who's a farmer who is uh, <clears throat> clutching a pear from a tree and tearing it down, and then he dies with it in his hand. And it's reminiscent of the Genesis 3 story. But then what happens in the music video is fascinating. It starts rewinding and going back in time. Everything is backwards all the way through his life. And, and what he's, what's happening in the music video is he's unmaking all his mistakes all his errors of judgment, all his sins, because he's going back to an innocent time. And the last scene in the music video is him getting baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he returns to a state of innocence. 
And that's what's happening here, is that you are now regarded as a child of God. You are brought into the family. Uh, and, and so everything that John will now write in the latter portion of this passage from verses 4 through 10 about the Christian pattern, about how we're to function and live our lives, is predicated upon our position. It's really important that we understand that he says that we are children of God, right? And he underscores the point by saying, and so we are. This is who we are. This is our credible position before heaven, and it was gifted to you by God. Because if you don't know that, you will misread what he says about the Christian pattern in verses 4 through 10, and you'll drive yourself to madness if you take it seriously outside of that position. So we have our position as you are a child of God. You are part of the royal family. And like, you know, like Prince Harry, you can't, you know, you can't leave England and go and move to America and then say controversial things. You just can't do that. You're part of the family now. You're locked in. You're signed, sealed, and delivered because of the blood. And then he says something about the pattern. So we have our position. Now the pattern, which is roughly verses 4 through 10, And if I were to summarize what St. John is writing here, I would do so in this way. He's essentially, uh, God's pattern for us is to take away our sin and to make us righteous. To take away our sin and to make us righteous. Let me just point out uh, this key part of the passage that I want to talk about. There are lots of other things to say. This is verse 5 through 7. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Okay, so let me say two things about that, right? Something about uh, taking away sins and something about making us righteous. So in terms of take away sins, this is not the first time John has used that language. The first time he used that language is in the opening chapters of John's gospel, where on the shore, another John, who was a fascinating figure, John the Baptist, points at Jesus and says about him that he is a human sheep, right? You are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now that same language is being repeated here. Now, when you hear the phrase, take away sins, what do you think of? I know what I think of immediately. I think of sins being forgiven. Forgiven. I think that's true. But it's also more than that. Um, The language in in the Greek uh, for the word take away is ahre, And it's almost always used uh, in terms of carrying a burden or carrying something from one place to another. It was used in the gospel uniquely of Jesus Christ on two occasions. Ahre was used regarding Jesus' carrying of his own cross. He ahreed his cross. And it was used of Jesus' corpse as people took it down from the cross and carried it to the tomb or ahreed it to the tomb. Uh, And so it has this notion of something being carried away, taken. Uh, And so I think that what John is saying in this passage is it's not only God's design to forgive our sins, he also wants to steal them from us, to extract them, to rob them away. Or to quote Toplady, the great Anglican hymn writer, um, he said that Jesus was to be for us, uh, regarding sin, the double cure, to free us from its guilt 
and power. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I very much wish my sins to be forgiven but not taken away. Uh, Because sin has, at least in the short term, a consoling and effective function in our lives. We don't sin because we're stupid. We sin because it brings us a release. It brings us relief. It brings us some comfort. It brings us a sense of superiority. It brings us a false sense of control. But it has a short-term gain alongside very long-term burdens and agonies. Um, But what Jesus is doing is functioning at a deeper level. He's saying, not only do I want to forgive you, I have to take away what's hurting you. I know that you're addicted to that uh, poison in your hand, that you're uh, chugging like a madman, like a madwoman, but I have to take that away. I have to take away the very things that bring you short-term comfort and long-term toxicity. And so Jesus' ambition is to uh, create more family resemblance in us. And the way that he does that is by absolving us and also healing our soul's leprosy so that we reflect our maker. But John does write about those who keep on sinning, or to quote him in other places, make a practice of sinning. And that's a real jaw dropper. Uh, and, And whenever we read that, we shudder. And part of that is quite reasonable, but part of it isn't. I think some people make a very grievous error when they read 1 John and conclude that the presence of sin means the absence of God. Well, John is not an idiotic pastor, friends. Like, he knows that Christians do struggle and struggle terribly. That's why he writes in 1 John, that is the opener to this letter, uh, that if anyone says they have no sin, they are a liar. And later he says they make God a liar. And then he says, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So he is assuming that Christians are bound up in all sorts of torments. And more than that, he says in our very chapter that we are not now what we will become, that we're in progress, we're in process here, but we haven't arrived. This is why it's fully appropriate that we confess our sins verbally on our knees every Sunday. And if you follow the offices of morning and evening prayer every day, because we have in fact sinned in thought, word, and deed daily. Uh, This is why Luther says that we are simul justus et peccator, right? That we are simultaneously justified and still deeply troubled and sinful. And yet... And yet, John warns us about the ongoing practice of sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it's probably akin to what St. Paul is writing about in the book of Romans when he talks about living in the dominion of sin, or under the power of sin, or under the slavery of sin. Um, Paul says to us um, in Romans 6 that sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, what is Paul's logic? And of course, for our own passage, what is John's logic? Something like this. Uh, Sin used to be the dominant country, the nation in which you once belonged. But through your attachment to Jesus Christ, you have been brought out of one decrepit nation into another glorious nation. You are no longer a member of the old, decaying, rotting, God-hating country. You've been brought into something else. And now, because you have this new position, you have to have a new pattern that is simpatico with this new position. 
Uh, and uh, I, I think John would tell us here regarding his own logic that sin is evidence of another family resemblance of the horned father of the Satan. And by virtue of our new position, we do not belong to that old family anymore, neither in our being nor in our practice. And therefore, if there is a war to be had in this world, it is not against conservatives and it is not against liberals and it's not against a particular form of news and it's not against social media and it's not against your mother and it's not against your brother that you haven't talked to in three years. Instead, the war has to be within. It's the war over sin. If you want to know who your most resilient enemy is, that enemy is the flesh that sticks with us, often closer than a brother. That is the thing that has to die, says both St. Paul and St. John. Uh, and so we have to have a pattern that matches our position where we are no longer uh, you know, a pawn in some satanic game. That's not who we are anymore. And this is hard. Right? Like To really deal with your sin, I mean to even ask the question, what's wrong with me? And then see what's wrong with you and then confess what's wrong with you, and then begin to labor through it. That's hard work. This is why Christianity will not always feel like a milk bath. I think that's what we want right now, is complete satiation and agreement all the time, constantly, and sit in our milk bath and, and, um, and have people feed us. Well, I was going to say strawberries, but I wouldn't want that. Like bacon cheeseburgers. That's all I've ever wanted. But that is just not Christianity. And it's actually not life either. Like, life is not like that. And so if you want complete satiation for your flesh in this religion, you've just got the wrong religion. Because Jesus never promised it. And in fact, the Bible seems to say that uh, the sinful aspects of our character are meant for one thing in this life, and it's death. So this is not touch football, it's tackle. Whether we like that or not is another issue. Sometimes I appreciate that roughness and sometimes I don't. But nevertheless, it is the case that we have a Jesus who loves us too much to have, to retain, to drink the poison that's killing us. Um, and so that's the pattern, friends. Uh, that's the pattern, at least in part, to take away sin, to forgive it and to rob us of it, but also to give us something in its place. Not just to take away, but to make us righteous. That's why the text says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness, if I were to speak theologically, is purity before God. Now, I realize in years that have heard theology or scripture a lot, that can sound like white noise. So let me uh, recast it that in a way that is faithful to the text, but also for our, uh, for our ears today. Um, I think righteousness is a, is a synonym for health. It's a synonym for health. It means being the truest and healthiest you that thrives in line with God's character. It's to live within God's design in such a way that you become your truest self. So righteousness, if I were to name some examples of how this would look, righteousness means holding steady in your convictions and not changing your ideals every time someone disagrees with you. Righteousness means not lying to your boss just to make sure she likes you. Righteousness means that you would never, ever roofie your date nor pressure someone into physical intimacy. Righteousness means that you would refrain from bullying those who look differently than you do or who are weak or who annoy you. Righteousness means making your home 
Your home is sanctuary to those who need to unwind and break down. Righteousness means noticing poor people and not immediately assuming that they deserve their lot. Righteousness means an unusual openness and a lack of defensiveness regarding our own character flaws and not being too proud to accept help. Righteousness means not contorting nor lying about scripture so that it agrees with us or some form of nationalism or the dominant zeitgeist. And righteousness means regularly worshiping God in church without having to offer unrelenting criticism about the service immediately after the service. Um, Righteousness means, in other words, mirroring the character of Jesus Christ, because ultimately righteousness is not some axiom. It's not a paradigm. It's not some sort of archetype. Righteousness was a human being with eyeballs, a human being with with dark skin, a human being who walked around the Mediterranean, a, a human being who existed to destroy the works of the devil and to break his power and to absolve those who aligned themselves with him. Uh, you know, I used to make fun of, and I think sometimes it's still warranted, the WWJD thing, like what would Jesus do thing, you know, the shtick from the 90s and all the bracelets that people used to wear, what would Jesus do? Because that is not, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is what did Jesus do, like on the cross and at the empty tomb for you, for your sins, for your eternality, and for your well-being. It's, that's the gospel. What would Jesus do is an ethical question, but there's also nothing wrong with it, so long as it's predicated on the gospel. What would Jesus do is a good question. It's a good question. What would it mean to have the mental capacities and the the cardial feelings of Jesus Christ in a situation. Your life would be better, and so would the lives of hundreds of other people if we were able to really live into that question. And I think that's righteousness. And one of the promises of the Christian gospel is that your sin will be stolen from you and it will be replaced by something glittering, eternal, and beautiful, something that belongs to the new eschaton, that belongs to the kingdom of God. So, friends, John is very clear. God positions us in his family. He makes us his little children, and then he gives us a new pattern to take away sin and to make us righteous. If I were to illustrate this, I would steal one from Martin Luther, who wrote about this passage and others like it in this way. He says, it's like a prince from a royal and wealthy family who falls deeply in love with a harlot on the street. He kneels down in the mud and proposes to the woman who wears her rags. And immediately she gains at their wedding a new status, new clothing, a new house, and a new relationship. And so she really is a new person. And now she has to spend the rest of her life unlearning certain things and learning new things, unlearning old impulses and learning new ones in order to match her new status. And so we have a new position and a new pattern. Now, very briefly, I'm going to mention four things that are true for those who are increasingly bearing God's resemblance, who are part of his family. Here they are. First, family resemblance means that we see more of our sin, not less of it. Salvation heightens our sensitivity regarding sin. Salvation brings us into the light, and the closer that we are to a source of light, the more blemishes we can see. You know, some people, again, tragically read this passage. They see remnant sin in their life and some ambivalence regarding that sin. They're not sure what to do with it. And they read from this passage condemnation. But the truth is, whenever we are 
met by the one who is all light and in him there is no darkness at all. We are going to see more than we'd like to regarding our own uh, sin and depravity. And so my question is simply this. What is our attitude toward the remnant sin that we do see? Do we celebrate it? Are we cavalier about it? Do we dismiss it, hide it, or despair over it? Or instead, over time, do we really see the need and engage in repentance? Do we see the need for repentance and then engage in it? Now, repentance does not ultimately mean that we sin like three less times per day until we're perfected. It means something far deeper and more profound than that. To to repent in Hebrew is to shuv, to turn. And in the Greek, it's metanoia, to have an inner change, a a new way of understanding. Um, It's a turn, and a turn toward what? This is where people make a tragic mistake. They think it means, many people think it means, a turn toward your willpower to finally conquer sin. Friends, that's heresy. It's Pelagianism. It's heresy. It was condemned by endless church councils, though nobody seems to care. But it, it was condemned. What, when you repent, you don't turn around and face your, your funhouse mirror. Instead, you face the blood. You turn around and you face the blood. You turn from your wickedness as well as your cobbled together self-righteousness and you look at the one who died for you because he is the only one who is the double cure, who can cure you of sin's guilt as well as its power. You don't have the capacity to do that or you would have done it already. Well, he does. He does. And so we see more of our sin, not less of it. But when we see more of it, we look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So point two, family resemblance means accepting a chastening. Accepting a chastening. You know, 1 John was not written to condemn strugglers. He isn't condemning anybody. These are his little children, after all. Instead, this text chastens the remnant sin in believers, reminding us that sin has no right to exist in us. Or to paraphrase 1 John, hellish behavior is only fit for hell. And this is hard because sometimes we enjoy our sin. We find comfort in it, distraction uh, through it, or release from it. Uh, But I find that sometimes the chastening words of Scripture are exactly what we need, even if they are hard on our ears. I remember receiving this from my wife, can you believe it, Uh, several years ago. uh, You you may know that... uh, that Monique is not a person who offers relentless criticism of me. You may know that. But let's just say one summer I had six weddings, and I was traveling quite a lot for those six weddings and doing a lot of planning and church work, and I uh, was falling in love with my job to an unholy and unhealthy degree. And one time when I got home from one of these faraway weddings, she said, you need to sit down. Now, that's never a good sign, right? It isn't like, you need to sit down so that I can give you a beer and an attaboy. <laughs> Instead, it was, be prepared. <laughs> you know, be prepared. Um, and, and she said, look, you're never here. And when you're here, you're not here. You're always someplace else. You're a captive to your work. And your family is suffering And I've tried telling you this, and you are not listening, and you need to listen to me now. It's hurting us, and you need to make a change immediately. Now, that was a chastening word. And believe me, 
what, what did I do, at least initially in my heart? I began to create a, a, a codicil of defenses. I could have defended myself. It's hard because she doesn't have that many evident character flaws. So I could say, well, yeah, but you have problems too. Like you're really loud <laughs> and Italian. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> but instead, uh, I think she'll back me up on this. I did take the rebuke. I took the rebuke because it was a righteous thing to say. And she was correct. And I needed to make some changes and make uh, some different priorities or have different priorities. And, uh, and that was a pivotal moment that pushed me in the right direction. And I think sometimes scripture's chastening is like that. It's like a pothole in the road that jostles our car in the right direction, even if it's unsettling. So family resemblance means that we see more of our sin, not less of it. It means that we accept chastening. Also, family resemblance means that we uh, engage in mimicry. I think mimicking people is great. As image bearers, we were created to mimic, to mimic aspects of God's nature. We see this in Paul's writings. He involves mimicry. He says to people so audaciously, follow me as I follow Christ. He doesn't just say follow Christ because they wouldn't have known Christ, but they did know Paul. Paul was a closer conduit in that sense, in that human sense. And they said, so just look at me and all the good things you see in me, just try that. See if that works for you. In other words, I encourage you, friends, to be a personality plagiarist, a personality plagiarist. And so if you um, have an aspect of yourself that is clearly out of accords with righteousness, with true spiritual health, seek out a healthy person who just does it better than you and just copy what they do. Like, don't try to be creative. It's too hard. Just mimic somebody who's already good at it until it becomes natural in you. We were made for that kind of sacred mimicry. Uh, and fourth, family resemblance means to know our position, to know our position, to remember that no matter what, that we are born from God and that God's seed abides, to quote this text. Our position is resiliently strong because it wasn't established by us. It was established by Christ for us, and we are the beloved of God, and he will love us until we, are, we become what we are already regarded to be. So I'll close with this story about my friend Catherine uh, Catherine grew up in a very, very strict uh, Catholic home. If I were Jim Gaffigan, I, I would say that she was raised a Shiite Catholic. Um, her father was both a TSA agent and a former Marine, so that's fun. And, um, I mean, maybe, maybe some of them are really lighthearted. I don't know, but he was not like that, and I know him pretty well. He did not suffer fools and one of, was one of those people who said, I don't suffer fools. By the way, never say that. It's terribly egotistical because um, who are you? But anyway, um, <laughs> don't suffer fools. And, and people feared him, especially his children, uh, terrified of him for good reason. Well, because of that, uh, all of his children rebelled in numerous ways, including my friend Catherine, who decided to date a lot of moronic, pushy men until one of them convinced her to do the deed and she was 17 years old when she became pregnant. She decided it would be against her uh, religion and scruples uh, to get an abortion, uh, which we were all happy about that she would refrain from that, but she uh, was terribly uh, anxious and even physically ill at the very thought of telling her father that she was pregnant. And as months rolled on, she could no longer hide her pregnancy and she knew that she was pregnant with a little girl who would be born on November 15th. <laughs> well, 
through many tears and fits and starts, she finally confessed this to her father, who looked at her and simply listened to everything that she had to say, and then said to his daughter, Catherine, I think you're going to be a wonderful mother, and I can't wait to have a granddaughter by Thanksgiving. And you know what happened at that moment? Something settled in her soul about her position in that family, that she really was loved and she really was wanted. Even with all the complexity, she was wanted. And you know what happened because of that? She did become a great mother. And she's a mother of five children now with a good husband, and they're doing remarkably well. And she is a social worker and a cantor in her church, and she is uh, one of the most decent people you'll ever meet. Um, how did that happen? She was reminded of her position as a daughter, and she learned a new pattern as a daughter. And I hope that's true for all of us, and that we receive this gospel word tonight, because when you are secure in love and belonging, you really can evolve. You really can change. Patterns can be broken. Chain, chains can be torn away, and you can become a truer version of yourself. God's design is to create more heaven in your life and to relieve you of the burden of sin. And so I hope you receive this as the best news in the world. Amen. We at last, they took your life. They could not.